A popular online illustrated cat video series called Simon's Cat conjures up a world that will ring true for many cat owners. The, the cat interrupts Simon while he's working or watching television, casually knocks objects off mantles, and mauls him when he's asleep. When Simon becomes furious, his unconcerned pet points to his mouth asking for food. Why do people love cats so much when they often seem to offer us little in return? That question and others uh, led us to decide to make cats the topic of this week's Please Explain. I'm very pleased it has brought Abigail Tucker, author of The Lion in the Living Room, How House Cats Tamed Us and Took Over the World. Uh, We are welcoming her to our show and... uh, uh, you should know that her book is published by Simon & Schuster. And if you have any questions about cats or just wonder, what does my cat do all day while I'm at work, you can give us a call. Our number is 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Abigail, what's your relationship with cats been like in your in your personal life? Well, um, I'm one of these people who's come from a a cat-loving clan. I grew up with cats. My mom grew up with cats and so on and so on back into uh, antiquity as far as I know. But um, I, uh, so I've always lived with these animals. Um, But it wasn't until recently that I realized that I, though I I thought I knew cats, I, I didn't really understand too much about how this um, relationship came to be, even though it had been sort of central to my own life for as long as I can remember. You're right that your relationship to cats changed when you had children. That's right. I um, I realized that you know these uh, and these little animals make a lot of demands of us, and I feel like you know when you have kids, you're suddenly under a lot of pressure, and you you think, hey, why why do we have these little um, guys around in the first place, and um, I sort of began to see them in a new light, both in terms of the demands that they place on us and sort of the, the lack of material evidence for the benefits that they, they give to us, but also in the, the wonder and awe that um, I saw in my own children as they began to see cats uh, for the first time and to understand what they are. So I both sort of started to question the relationship and ask, you know, hey, what do humans get out of this anyway? And then also to see anew through the children, you know, just what magnificent little creatures these are and what a privilege it is for all of us to have the chance to share houses with them. Your current cat is named Cheeto. How did you get him? Cheeto, um, who I, I have to, to sadly note, has um, died in the time between the, the book was uh, published, and I haven't been ready to get a, a new kitty yet. But I got Cheeto um, when I was working as a young reporter in upstate New York, and um, I was uh, visiting a mobile home community um, to write um, about a totally unrelated matter, actually a murder, and um, I just kind of found myself in the middle of this feral or semi-feral cat colony, um, and there were some new kittens around, and uh, one of the women who lived at the park said, you know, would you would you like one? And, you know, they were these sweet little orange guys, and I said, of course, I'll take one. And so I came back in a few weeks and claimed Cheeto, um, and, you know, even though I had never conceived of this book uh, at the time, his name was, you know, a play on the cheese snack and, you know, the wild so I sort of, even then, I think, had a sense that these animals are both sort of 
cute, delicious little items, but also formidable beasts. Did you consider whether, well, in this case, Cheetah was male, but whether he's male or female, does that matter much when we're looking to find the best match? You know, um, I I don't know that it does if you're, you know, going to stay and neuter your cat and and keep it indoors. If you're going to be adding a a cat into a multi-cat situation, then, you know, maybe the the sex of the cat uh, matters a little bit more. But as I've uh, only learned through reporting this book, you know, experts don't necessarily recommend that you have multiple cats anyway. Um, but um, I always personally have liked male cats. I, they're, they can be sort of a little bit bigger and brawnier and sort of fun to snuggle with, but I know there's plenty of people who prefer females. I'm speaking with Abigail Tucker, the author of The Lion in the Living Room, How House Cats Tamed Us and Took Over the World. It's from Simon & Schuster. This is WMYC, org. And it's Please Explain, we're talking about cats, and we invite your calls to 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WMYC.org, or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Many cats are notably picky eaters. How adaptable is their diet? Yeah, one of the really interesting things about cats and the fact that they have taken over the world. There's 600 million or, you know, some people would say closer to a billion cats um, on the planet today. Um, One of the interesting things about that is that they're really unlikely animals for this kind of global expansion because they have such a particular diet. Cats are what's called hypercarnivores. They require something like three times more protein in their diet even than other carnivores like dogs and bears. Dogs who will um, eat anything. Yeah, dogs will eat anything. Dogs can even be vegan. (laughs) Cats, Cats can't survive on a vegan diet. They can't synthesize these key fatty acids on their own. They have to eat other animals. And so that's why in nature, cats are relatively rare. They're sort of the definitive apex predator. They're the the lonely guy at the top of the um, food pyramid. Um, And um, so that uh, sort of carnivorous aspect of their lives and the fact that they even compete with humans for food has, you know, made them a really unlikely animal to be as such a successful invasive species. Um, You know, most animals that are most uh, organisms that are able to sort of conquer the globe this way are things like jellyfish or, you know, certain mollusks, really little sort of brainless things that just kind of bumble their way across the globe. Um, and same goes for domesticated animals. It's rare that we um, would domesticate an animal that has such exacting demands for high-quality protein. We tend to prefer things like pigs that will eat, you know, literally swill just a bunch of table scraps. If you just dump the, the you know, crust of your toast and the leftovers from your breakfast in your cat's bowl, they'd probably, you know, <laughs> turn their nose up at you. You know, they want high-quality food, and I read this fascinating study that said that in Australia, um, the average um, pet cat actually eats more fish per year than the average Australian. So in a way, they eat better than we do. But you write that they've chosen domestication and that they're carpetbaggers. (laughs) Yes. So I guess um, the science of domestication is a a really sort of fascinating and um, complicated one. Most animals um, 
at some point, however the association began, if we were living in, you know, the woods next to a herd of deer or, you know, found a baby piglet in the woods, mostly at some point in our relationship with an animal, humans make a conscious effort to cultivate it for our own purposes, to pen it or harvest it or slaughter it systematically, whatever. Cats um, have um, entered into kind of a domestic contract with humans without humans ever having said, sure, let's go for it. Cats um, kind of invaded our homes back in the Neolithic period when we were making our first permanent settlements and uh, transitioning from um hunters and hunter and gatherers to, to farmers, um, cats and um, other little, um, what are called uh, mesopredators, these medium-sized carnivores, um, started to pop up in large numbers around these um, early human settlements and what's called a mesopredator release. And that happened because humans had begun to alter the environment as we do by, um, you know, killing off um, other big predators in the area and leaving these large mounds of garbage around for these little animals to eat. So cats were drawn to our settlements, and then they kind of went a step further and crossed our threshold. So we don't have things like badgers and weasels and foxes as pets today, but we have house cats because they sort of change their brains and personalities to get along with people, which is especially fascinating because um, humans and cats have never gotten along for all of our deep history. We've been sort of the bitterest enemies. It appears that humans are hardwired to bond with dogs for companionship and for work, and, and that the feeling and the hardwiring may even be mutual. But uh, was there an evolutionary reason for early humans to even want to domesticate cats other than to have them catch mice and rats? Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's fascinating. You know, even the evidence that cats, you know, catch mice and rats um, to a degree that it would matter for human uh, food uh, stores or protecting us from disease is really kind of sketchy. There's not that many, um, you know, reasons that that people catch cats around. And, you know, we don't... Uh, we don't relate to cats in the same way that we relate to dogs because of their really um, exacting um, and sort of ridiculously demanding uh, need for meat. Cats um, live alone in nature mostly except for lions, and they're not social animals, whereas dogs are social animals. Um, and so we sort of naturally dive with dogs in this sort of give-and-take social way that's a lot harder for cats to um to uh, pick up on and, and cope with. So we're asking these like very isolated carnivorous animals that don't really communicate in nature because they're not communicators and there's no one for them to talk to to communicate with us. So this sort of natural sort of gazing at each other and, you know, a very clear understanding of language and the following of commands and things that we see with dogs that really happen with cats so much. What cats do have um, is almost... Um, an accident, they have this very pleasing aesthetic um, composition of their faces that um, for a variety of accidental reasons, cat faces resemble human faces and particularly um, human infant faces really closely. And that's because um, 
you know, basically cats have these really big eyes. A cat's eyes are actually almost as big as an adult human's eyes, um, which are situated right in the front of their heads. And that's because as, you know, very accomplished stock and ambush predators. Cats need really good binocular vision. Um, cats have really small noses like we do, and that's because they're not scent-based predators they, like dogs. They don't sort of snuffle after their prey for miles and miles. And cats also have these very cute rounded heads, and that's actually because they've got these really short, powerful jaws to deliver this killing bite. Um, Although so they often con- like to, they often like to toy with their prey. <laughs> when they have when they have the chance but if you um and you know that's kind of a funny sort of uh uh thing that we've we've learned just in the last you know 50 years or so or 70 years that we've been keeping cats in our houses we've watched these behaviors that they do but if you you know see the way cats hunt uh in in nature it's usually this very sort of business-like explosive thing where they're hidden somewhere and they kind of just pop out suddenly and they have they don't have a lot of endurance they just have one chance to deliver that killing bite so they've got these strong strong jaws and so these these seizures combined in their face have this sort of like mesmerizing effect on people just because they accidentally happen to look like us and you actually see the same kind of facial um structure in um owls, another animal that humans are kind of obsessed with because it's like this other nocturnal predator that has these big round eyes and this round red head. And we just, as being sort of vain creatures, find this look to be um, irresistible. And so just, I really think that one major reason why we have such a fondness for cats is just this um, aesthetic accident and we find them to be kind of mesmerizing. Although you say that their brains change when they're domesticated, are there biological differences between feral cats, wild cats, domesticated cats? So feral cats and domestic and uh, our pet cats are biologically the same animal. Um, they are, you know, if you take take a feral kitten and raise it, you can have a wonderful pet. If you take, you know, a kitten from a pet litter and put it outside, chances are it's going to sort of make it as a uh, feral cat. Those guys are the same. Um, the uh, near relative of um, our uh, modern house pets um, still lives in the Near East today. It's this little kind of wild cat called Pilos sylvestris libica. And scientists have compared the genomes of um, that little wild cat and um, our pet cats, and they found that there are remarkably few differences between these animals, our pets and the the wild um, animals, especially compared to, you know, what you see in the difference between, say, dogs and and wolves. Um, But, you know, the differences that there are, um, uh, you know, one one of them is that house house cats and feral cats have shorter um, guts. Um, They have shorter legs. But perhaps the biggest difference is that they is that they have smaller brains, and that's a feature common across domesticated animals. Um, and um, it has to do not with intelligence, really. It's it's um, has to do with the reduction of their fear systems that makes it makes cats able to. Um, to live, hunt, and breed around humans as successfully as they do. So they have less um, less fear. But, you know, anyone can see if you, 
if, if a, even if a feline expert is in, say, Turkey looking through binoculars at a little cat, they won't be able to tell necessarily if it's a if it's a domestic cat or a wild Phyllis Sylvestris libica, whereas nobody's going to have trouble telling a German shepherd from a wolf or, you know, let alone a chihuahua from a wolf. And so it's interesting that cats, the domestication process that the domestic cats have undergone is incomplete in certain ways, and they don't have a lot of these funky features that we see across um, other domesticated animals um, this idea of a domesticated a domestication syndrome where you see, you know, a lot of domestic, domesticated animals have floppy ears and curly tails and short little faces and funny teeth. Pets, pets don't have any of that stuff. And it's um, some people think that they're still being domesticated as we go together through history. I'm speaking with Abigail Tucker on today's Please Explain. Look at cats. Her book is The Lion in the Living Room, How House Cats Tamed Us and Took Over the World. It's published by Simon & Schuster. And we're going to take a little break. When we come back, we'll take your calls. Our number here is 212-433-9692. People are calling in about uh, cats rubbing up against us, why some of them will bite even if they've been with us since we were very young, whether we should separate sibling cats, all sorts of interesting questions. So stay with us for more. We are back on today's Please Explain with Abigail Tucker, author of The Lion in the Living Room, How House Cats Tamed Us and Took Over the World. It's published by Simon & Schuster. We're taking your calls at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wmyc.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And Danny from New Jersey, thank you for hanging on so long. Glad to put you on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I wanted to ask about my cat, Kook. He's a very big and strong boy, and sometimes he gets really, really crazy and aggressive. And we wonder if there's something we could do to help him relax or maybe take an edge off. (laughs) (laughs) And petting him isn't enough? Oh, no, no, no. He'll start, like, hissing and going crazy. He he doesn't like to be held down. He likes to do what he wants to do. (laughs) Abigail? Um, well, uh, I think you're not alone in having this uh, <laughs> this phenomenon of a, a crazy cat living with you, and I, I like your uh, the, the name of your cat very much. Um, I, uh, you know, there's um, a lot of research that um, addresses this idea of what it means for um, a, a pet cat to exist inside of a, a modern human house, and even though you know we look at our cats you know, sleeping on the couch and eating all this delicious food that we serve them whenever they want. You know, to us, it seems like they're on easy street. These cat behaviorists will tell us that, you know, actually our homes can be, you know, despite our very best efforts, um, stressful places for our cats to live um, because they're so different than the um, uh, the outside world. A lot of cats are indoor-only cats, and, you know, they don't have enough uh, stimulation sometimes. Sometimes they don't have enough privacy. So um, there's different uh, things that um, you can try to, um, to work on with your cat to see um, if uh, this, um, this, these sort of 
sudden and aggressive behaviors might might diminish. Um, some people will recommend making a, a refuge for your cat, which is literally setting aside an entire room of your house to um, you know, giving it over to the cat's use and making sure that there's lots of nice soft beds in there and the source of water and that it's really warm in there. Um, you know, you could do everything from making sure that there's no loud, disturbing noises in your house. Like cats are very sensitive to noises that we can't hear that can be emitted by things like refrigerators. Um, you could even do something like um, give your uh, go to the um, website, the um, Indoor Pet Initiative, where they have information about how to give your cat um, a uh, prey preference test. Um, if your cat is not outside and hunting, which is sort of what many environmentalists would prefer these days, um, you can check and see if your cat, given the opportunity, would be a bird hunter or a bug hunter or a rodent hunter, and then buy sort of the anatope anatomically appropriate toys to make sure that its uh, sort of primal needs are being met. Many people um, are upset that, that cats go after birds. Very upset, yes. And they, they do go after birds. So it's sort of because that's their, their nature. Um, so, um, But I don't think people can be too upset if you get a, a, a toy bird and have your cat attack it rather than, you know, one of the, the neighborhood uh, wildlife um, but there's basically endless things that you can do, and really it can get quite extreme. Um, you, cats, you know, in nature really are used to being kind of masters of their domain and kings of the jungle, and, you know, they like to have control. They like to have their food at a certain time every day. They might not like strange people coming into the house. They might not like it if you have a baby. All kinds of things that you could sort of... Um, scientifically test and kind of eliminate uh, variables. Um, but yeah, basically when it comes to dealing with a cat that has these issues, I, I think the modern perspective is to kind of view, instead of trying to change the cat, you, mo you um, try to modify the environment um, to maximize the cat's happiness. Because, you know, in the end of, uh, at the end of the day, we're the ones who have um, confined these very uh, spectacular predators in our houses, and it's kind of up to us to um, make our homes as much their territory as we possibly can. Let's take another call. Scott from Manhattan. Hi, you're on the air. Um, hi there. Um, so here's the situation. We had two cats. Um, we had one cat, uh, Mrs. Chippy, in the house first for a few years, and then we got a second cat, Captain Butters, uh, who was pretty scared, and so we put her litter box and food upstairs. Now, uh, Mrs. Chippy and uh, Captain Butters just completely brawl, and um, <laughs> and won't you know won't Mrs. Chippy won't let Captain Butters come downstairs, and they fight. And and I'm wondering if you have any suggestions on how to uh, how to get the cats to uh, get along. Yeah, I mean, I think you're on the 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 right track. Um... Except, you know, another thing that you can do is one of the lessons of uh, cat behavioral science is that you can never have too many litter boxes, basically, that, you know, you can always add an extra one and extra sources of food just so these guys don't feel like they're directly competing. And, I mean, actually, I... I it, because in nature, especially un, unrelated cats are 
prone to avoid each other because that's how they're designed as these apex predators that, you know, have to live alone to get as much meat as they need. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it can almost be a mistake to think that they have to get along with each other. Um, well, does it matter what they're... The Mrs. Chippies and the downstairs can be Captain Butters or vice versa. Um, and they can just each have their own little world because even though we think that, you know, if I was all trapped all alone in a house all day, I'd be kind of lonesome and want a friend. I, I'm not sure that's how, how cats think exactly. And they might be happier um, with um, without companionship. And it's kind of ironic because people tend to have only one dog but multiple cats. And um, dogs are the ones that benefit more from having a social um, companion, I think, um, of their own kind in the house. But it sounds like you're doing exactly the right thing. And I would say just don't pressure them too much. If you can make two um, separate habitats, each equipped with litter boxes and food, even though it's kind of a pain for you, um, I think that, you know, what will be will be. And maybe they'll they'll get bored and want to hang out eventually, or maybe they'll just each want to be king of their own castle. Is it different if they're siblings and they grew up together? I think it can be different if they're, if they're siblings and grew up together. Um, one reason that I... Um, called my book uh, The Lion in the Living Room is because um, lions are in the cat family known as being really unusual because they're the only truly social cats. Everybody has seen the Lion King and knows about lion pride. These guys hang out together in the Serengeti and um, control various resources. Well, one of the most interesting things about house cats and an example of their sort of enduring adaptability is that house cats can actually live in certain circumstances. They've learned to live in these sort of lion-like family-based prides. So just as a group of related lions will gang up to control um, a water hole in the, on the savanna where lots of prey comes, a bunch, a gang of um, related feral cats will gang up to control a particular um, alleyway or dumpster where there's lots of food. So especially when there is a family bond there, I think it makes the um, the um, likelihood of cohabitation um, of adult cats, I think it sort of increases the likelihood. Um, and then also, you know, there's just cats are individuals and there's a wide range of personalities on the cat spectrum. Yeah, so I was wondering, do breeds... Cats, I've had cats that are unrelated that get along. Do breeds have different fine. personalities? Because I yeah. once had a couple of cats, a calico named Motley, who liked to snuggle next to me when yeah. I went to bed. In fact, she was very much like a dog. <laughs> and then, at the same time, a Maine Coon cat named Havoc, who who tended to keep to herself, although she seemed to have a strong sense of territoriality. Exactly, yeah, and it depends on, you know, different things like when in this sort of um, very malleable window, when these cats as kittens were first introduced to people and, you know, any personality differences. Um, and, you know, I, uh, yes, I've, t I've definitely had the experience. My cats, my parents had a Siamese and a Burmese cat, and they used to curl up together exactly like a yin and yang thing. It was really cute. Um, but I think what, what you would say is just that if in a situation where it's not working, like Mississippi and Captain Butters, that not to force it and that these animals are just being cats and it's nothing that you're doing wrong or they're doing wrong. It's just best to accommodate their preference.
A number of people have written in to ask what purring means and what it means when a cat rubs up against our legs. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> scientists have tried to study the, the leg rub question. Um, a very um, renowned scientist, John Bradshaw, you know, said, said he devoted a number of years to exactly how cats rub and if it means a certain thing. And he was a little bit um, flummoxed as to what exactly it meant. There's ideas that they might be trying to um, deposit, uh, you know, certain uh, uh, smelly substances on us as a way, like almost as they would on a tree trunk, something like that. Cats are, um, in nature, do um, communicate with other cats by kind of rubbing their glands on various uh, surfaces and leaving kind of like voicemails for other cats that would come along. Um, but it, it, cats... Um, but then again, um, you know, it's very true that a cat might be conditioning you as its particular owner to do um, what the cat wants. Even though cats are these um, asocial animals by nature, one of the fascinating aspects, again, of their adaptability is that they can live in these very closed environments like a home and start from scratch almost and learn how to influence um the human owner. So by doing things like meowing in a certain way, rubbing in a certain way, your cat can tell you that it wants something, but then if you go you, you go over to your neighbor's house and listen to its cats and its meows, those mean something different. That's like a totally different, unique language. So cats do develop unique languages to um, instruct their owners, and the purring is one particularly fascinating aspect of that because... Um, Scientists have kind of um, deconstructed the audio of cat purrs, which we um, find on the surface to be these very sort of pleasant, mellifluous sounds, and found that often inside of these purrs, cats will embed a very unpleasant sound, which is sort of similar to a baby whale that's a cry for food, this very insistent cry for food. But you hear this pleasant purring sound and you find yourself somehow getting up, going to the kitchen, cracking open a new can of friskies and, and they've throwing trained it down. Us. Abigail, it's we've run out of time. Conditions. Oh, okay. Too bad. Abigail Tucker, her book, The Lion in the Living Room, How House Cats Tamed Us and Took Over the World, is published by Simon & Schuster. Thank you so much for being on today's Please Explain. Thank you so much.